Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads, the big book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. So the last episode, we left off uh, right smack in the middle of of more about alcoholism. Uh, So that's where we're going to be picking up here. But first, per my usual sort of format, I'm going to be reading out of the Daily Stoic. Uh, Before before I get into that, I just want to touch on a couple things. Um, The first one being that my my regular secular sobriety group uh, finally had an in-person meeting after, uh, well, we haven't had one since the start of the pandemic. So it's been, what, a year and four months. And some of us have kind of interacted here and there, but we didn't have an actual meeting. And I got to be honest, being able to go back to my home group and have a real meeting in person it just it was so obviously different than a zoom meeting and i appreciate zoom for offering an opportunity for people to be able to have a meeting and some of that connectivity but it just wasn't the same and for me what it kind of boiled down to i don't know if anybody here has participated in any of those kind of meetings but at the end you know we usually we usually sound off with the responsibility statement all of us you know speaking in unison for that and we would all, you know, unmute our mics and we would all try to, to say in unison and it just didn't happen. Like it just, it would, it would be garbled and like everybody would be out of sync and it would just be this just giant mess. For me, that was what was missing from the in-person meeting. Not the fact that we could speak in unison, but whatever connectivity, whatever tissue or sinew, you know, non-physical that we encounter in person that allows us to say stuff like that in unison to interact with each other on a more subtle level you know like facial expressions aren't the same over zoom i don't think for me the um the slight jokes you know the the smile here and there the there's there's like i guess a a little bit of internal pressure to pay attention it's a little harder to be distracted being present amongst your peers when they share things that are of importance being physically present just there's just a lot of difference there and I appreciated it I really did and I was so glad to hear that we were finally going to have those you know I you know immediately it was like okay well this is what I'll be doing from Fridays here on out and I missed an opportunity to go eat with them we usually go out afterwards so there's a little bit of fellowship you know meeting after the meeting I just wasn't able to attend that some of it was financial some of it was I just I just had some stuff I needed to take care of here I was a little behind on this podcast a little behind on a couple of other chores you know stuff I I didn't really leave a lot of time for myself to, to take care of. So, you know, I probably could have got away with going out, but I also didn't really feel that I needed it tonight, I guess. I think some of that just comes down to my my limitations on social activities now. I have definitely learned those limits again or have a different kind of a balance there. I even shared in the meeting that, you know, I got a little manic with my social activities before the pandemic. I was trying so hard to be social that um, it became a distraction or even an, almost an addiction for me because I was so introverted most of my life and so antisocial. So the pandemic was kind of a reset for that. And now I have uh, different exhaustion levels when it comes to large group activities. Not to say I won't get back into the habit of going out and eating with them. I think that's going to be important. That's just as important as spending time in the meeting. Um, but tonight, you know, I just wasn't up for it. So, you know, I guess I'm asking my my listeners, the few that I have, which I appreciate. I cannot explain enough how much I appreciate seeing that even a few people are listening uh, and hopefully still following along at this point. You know, how are you guys 
how are you folks going about uh, maintaining that social aspect of your recovery? How are you keeping in touch with people uh, despite the pandemic or even now that we're coming out of the other end of it? Have you gone to in-person meetings? Have you considered uh, even just hitting up some folks from some of your Zoom meetings that may be local and maybe meeting at a park where it's nice and open or however you feel comfortable doing that? What are you, what are you doing that's a little bit more involved physically with other people in recovery? And I don't mean 13 stepping, <laughs> like not that kind of physical, you know, just how are you interacting with the world around you a little bit more now that things are opening back up? Are you getting out of habits? Did you get into a habit of being introverted? You know, let me know. Um, find me on Facebook. You know, I, I have that Facebook page. Uh, an Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. You can also find me on Twitter at an atheist in, uh, And you can also just email me at one atheist in AA at gmail.com. Uh, I think there's even an option on anchor to leave me a voice message. You know, just let me know what's going on, how you guys are handling all this. Um, now that things are opening back up and uh, getting back into the swing of things. The other thing I wanted to touch on is if anybody is interested in learning more about like the history of AA, which I touch on a little bit here, but I'm not a scholar when it comes to that stuff. I know like a bit of it. I know probably more than most just from some curiosities but people that are actually really adept at the knowledge of the history of AA have put out some interesting work the most recent was uh, John over at Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast um, one of my favorite sobriety podcasts he did a, uh, a video cast of one of his sessions that he did for Secular Overeaters Community Gathering. Uh, this was on June 13th. Uh, I'm going to post a link to that video in the show notes. If for some reason I forget to do that, somebody call me out. I'll make sure that they get included. I'm trying to get better at that stuff. Uh, but he goes on to explain a lot of the history of specifically the secular history of AA. Um, and I think a couple things of note that I'll touch on here before getting into the reading is, you know, two of the earliest members of AA, one of them was definitely atheist. The other one was atheist, maybe more leaning agnostic, but they helped shape a lot of what ended up being included in the big book. Uh, it helped shape one of one of the gentlemen went on to kind of preach a non-God version of AA, almost a very secular version of AA. That's what he had preferred. He didn't want God included. These two were Jim Burwell and Hank Parkhurst. Now, Hank Parkhurst, it sounds like, was sort of lost in history. So it sounds like as far as Hank goes, he went back out and drank and never really got back on track. Uh, but if he had, it sounds like he would have been included as one of the founders. He had a lot to do with, you know, the shape of what ended up being presented to the sort of committee that decided on what was going to be included in the big book. And it sounds like as far as like official, you know, history goes, he kind of gets thrown under the bus for a lot of stuff, which is unfortunate because from what I can tell, he really had a lot to do with you know, the book, man, he really had a lot to do with how it ended up getting shaped. He's also one of the authors that ends up writing a section of the book. Uh, in this case, it's the chapter to the employers. Now, it's not really clear if he wrote the entire chapter uh, it, or if he just wrote the majority of it, but he did have a lot to do with that chapter. And the other gentleman, Jim Bur Burwell, between the two of them, they really had a lot to do with excluding the focus on a Christian God, the whole God of your understanding or the other phrasing like higher power, you know, that comes from them. They didn't want God at all. They wanted that to be removed. They wanted it to be more psychological and more, uh, more to do with, you know, you finding your own path to being a better person and using the 12 steps or a version of the 12 steps in a way to achieve that. And 
so really the compromise was that they were going to use god of your god of your understanding higher power something that could be shaped a little bit easier for just anybody the inclusivity of aa the minimal amount that there seems to be in the big book and and beyond really came from these two folks and it's you know it's unfortunate that the reason why I'm bringing this up specifically not just because it's it's interesting to me uh, because I, I joined this Facebook group that somebody was having some trouble with depression in the group and so I posted that you know Bill Wilson had struggled with depression uh, for a lot of his sobriety and that his way of working through that depression was to produce more literature he did a lot of writing then that's how he ended up overcoming a lot of his depression. That's how he focused on service was it was through his words. Like he tried to provide as much words as he could. Now, yeah, the big book has a lot of various stories that he told that were a little bit more of a salesman style uh, of storytelling and not really based in actual fact as far as like his accounts of interactions with people. But when it came right down to it, the message that he was selling was truthful the message of recovery the message of being a better person of overcoming that through service was was truthful his work like the 12 by 12 uh, and more importantly this letter that he wrote that i'll end up reading a little later on emotional sobriety that he wrote to you know a friend who was depressed and he was writing him in order to try to help this friend and in the process ended up helping himself just through the act of writing and so i was telling this person in the facebook facebook group about this and i provided the link and it got taken down. And I didn't understand why the message had gotten taken down. I wasn't, I didn't even really talk much about atheism, even though I usually do when it comes to newcomers, because I like to make sure they understand that there's other paths to this kind of sobriety. And I asked about it, and then I got into a conversation with one of the moderators. And the initial reason was because there was a link that was associated with it. And I was told that the only links that are provided or, or accepted are directly from the AA Worldwide Services. And... You know, the, the person that I was talking to was like, we don't really like to flood newcomers with stuff like this. We don't really want to, you know, overburden them with, with things like, you know, Bill W. suffering from depression. Tried to tell me that that just wasn't true and that early in his sobriety, he'd worked through his depression with, with the, the pastor, um, I forget his name, that it wasn't an issue moving forward. And, you know, just the kind of like whitewashed version of history that, that seems to kind of permeate long timers in AA. You know, this version of history where Bill was never an issue. He, he, he got sober, overcame his depression, and was perfect all the way up until the end of life. And one, here's there's a lot of reasons why this bothers me. The two main ones is that's a little culty. When you're, when you're trying to shield newcomers from asking questions about the history of AA or learning the history of, of a program or organization, um, from learning that they're... Their founders are just humans, just people. That to me is a little culty. Now I'm not I'm not one of those that feels that AA is an actual cult cult. Like like I've said before, we don't have to. Uh, my if I was married, my wife wouldn't have to sleep with the leader of the cult. Like you know, there are aspects of it I guess that could probably fall in line with a cult. Um, if anything, it's a little more of a religion, quote unquote, than anything. And again, I understand why that turns a lot of people off, but that part bothers me when they start limiting your exposure to the actual truth of things uh, as a way to quote-unquote protect newcomers because they don't feel that they're capable of understanding that humans made this program you know just to to 
reinforce the divinity side of what some people feel is important. You know, the whole fundamentalists that believe that the book as it's written, exactly as it's written, should be taken as gospel, that anything that's not approved by the the AAWS is just omitted. And I don't like that. I don't like that a part of that includes omitting that atheists helped write the book, that they were involved, you know, just to specifically make it more religious, spiritual heavy. Like, it's already enough in the book. We can also just include the fact that there were non-believers that helped participate in this. And I think what it really comes down to is this sort of protection of the kind of, you know, the, the idea that Bill W., really, it's Bill Wilson that people really point to. We talk about Dr. Bob too, Bob Smith, but it's Bill Wilson's name that gets thrown about the most. And what it really comes down to is the idea that they were the ones who wrote the book. That's not really the case. That just isn't. It was written by a lot of people, or a lot of people had input and and helped polish the book. And then there was a committee that voted on what parts of the book were going to be included and changes that need to be made. It was a very democratic process. And I think that that's extremely important to let newcomers know that, that this book was written by a group of people that came together and agreed on stuff. More importantly, though... Aside from even that, why would it be against our principles to know that very flawed people worked on this book? Why would that hurt things? Who thinks objectively that newcomers knowing the book was written by human beings is a bad thing? Why would we have to protect them from that? When I found out that Bill Wilson had major life struggles while he was working on this stuff in sobriety. It made me feel better about the struggles that I was having in sobriety. They was just they were just human people that wrote this thing that had issues. They fought, they argued, they stayed sober. They overcome those issues. You know, the birth of these meetings didn't happen because everybody got along. Some of the meetings were a little bit more religious than others. Some of the meetings had different kinds of beginnings and endings. They, they, they all shared and carried the same message, though. The fact that they didn't get along was the reason why they ultimately ended up making it the type of organization that it is now, where there is no ruler or leader. There is no one person to decide for everybody. You, you can't just stay the chair of the meeting or the secretary of the meeting. Like People get voted in and get voted out, and there's, and there's a group conscience and there is an inclusivity to everybody making this decision. Like this came about from their infighting. This came about from their egos. They overcame that together by creating processes that would make sure that their egos wouldn't win out. Why wouldn't we want to know this stuff? Now, I, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, it's not necessary in order to stay sober. Most people can go on without knowing that. But if I were presenting that information to somebody and a person in a meeting was like, hey, we don't tell newcomers that, I'd, be, I'd bounce. If I was a newcomer and I heard that, if I, was, if I was a brand new person in AA and I was like, oh, I heard this, this, and this, and someone's like, no, 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 we don't talk about that. Here's all you need to know. Don't worry yourself about that stuff. Like that would, that would be more of a red flag. That would concern me. There are aspects of this program that I think some of us will just never know, and that's unfortunate. But the parts that we do, luckily, are being shared a lot more regularly. And John over at Beyond Belief has that video that I'll post in the link. There's another book, if anybody's really interested in nerding out about the history of this, that I doubt is AAWS approved, but it was written by some of the people that were involved in the early process of this, uh, and it's called Writing the Big Book, The Creation of AA, William H. Shaberg. 
I read this at some point, but it was years and years ago, and I've forgotten half of I forgot most of what I what I learned from it, and probably would have a different perspective on it anyways. But I mean, there it is. That there's just a lot of information in this that really goes into the dysfunctional nature of the start of AA. Again, I'm just gonna go go on and double down on this. I think that's extremely important to newcomers to know that this was all born out of essentially like a group of people that were the metaphor of a person in brand new recovery. Like just chaos, uh, dysfunction, and people not getting along right away, and people having to find common ground and come together despite their differences. Like that, to me, is a history that everybody should know. Like it should not be just whitewashed into being this beautiful creation. The, the AA adolescence almost destroyed the program. It survived despite that. Why wouldn't we want to know that? Why wouldn't we want people to know that? That's like ours. That's the Phoenix Rising fucking story of everybody who ends up participating in recovery and ends up actually making real growth and surviving that mess. Like, come on now. So I kind of yammered a little bit more than I usually do at the beginning of this, uh, but I found all that a little bit important or at least interesting, and I hope others do as well. So today's reading uh, from the Daily Stoic is going to be from July 26th. Uh, again, I don't know. This is probably not anywhere close to when this was released, but, uh, you know, this stuff's still pertinent. This is when good men do nothing. Often injustice lies in what you aren't doing, not only in what you are doing. Marcus Aurelius, Meditations 9.5. History abounds with evidence that humanity is capable of doing evil, not only actively but passively. In some of our most shameful moments, from slavery to the Holocaust to segregation to the murder of Kitty Genovese, guilt wasn't limited to perpetrators but to ordinary citizens who, for multitude of reasons, declined to get involved. It's that old line, all evil needs to prevail is for good men to do nothing. It's not enough to just not do evil, you must also be a force for good in the world as best you can. So this was an interesting reading, real, really. Like, I don't know why, honestly, they included the murder of Kitty Genovese in this because, well, I mean, it turned out that that article was completely falsified. If you're not familiar with it, there was a 28-year-old woman named Kitty Genovese that was killed outside of her apartment. There was an article that ran that said that 38 witnesses had seen the murder and that none of them called the police or came to her aid. There's been a bunch of psychological studies that followed that, but then it turned out that another competing newspaper found some dirt that exposed the fact that the original article was deeply flawed and completely exaggerated the entire situation, and that if there was a witness, it was like one or two, but it seemed like it was possible that there weren't even any witnesses, and that people that had heard the commotion had actually tried to call the police. So we'll just omit that from the reading as an example of, you know, people not doing enough in the face of injustice, or whatever the explanation was. This is another example where sometimes the explanation, I think, just doesn't really, it wasn't really all that well thought out as far as the reading goes. For me, as far as it applies to recovery, yes, it's an injustice. And I've explained this in my first, very first episode here, where I, I go over kind of like my life, um, not the one that has a format, but where I, I share my background. For me, not doing anything is an injustice. If I'm not working on myself, if I'm not moving at least a little forward and being a little bit better, that inaction and inactivity is an injustice to all the stuff that happened before now. 
And I am admitting that that applies to the last couple of months, the last six, seven months that I haven't really been participating in AA recently. While my actions aren't indicative of me kind of going backwards in my recovery, and I would say that I still worked to put out some kind of kindness in the world, I wasn't acting as much as I could have been. I wasn't doing more like I could have been. I wasn't participating in my recovery like I should have been. I wasn't uh, helpful at the meetings because I wasn't there. I wasn't sponsoring somebody. So in a lot of ways, that is an injustice. While I wasn't putting more misery out in the world, I wasn't really doing anything to, to mitigate some of that misery. You know what I mean? And going a little further than that, what I think this would really sort of lean into is anytime I find myself thinking I could have done a thing and just didn't, while maybe not a general, not an injustice on the level of some of the things that they use as examples, uh, it's still an injustice. Like, it's a waste. It's a waste for me to see an opportunity to do something that's just a little outside myself and not do it. And that includes like reaching out to somebody that might be having a hard time in the program, or just checking in, or just doing anything that's outside of my own little selfish bubble. Knowing that I have the opportunity to do that and choosing something else like watching TV or playing video games or whatever the other thing is because I see whatever the good thing might be as an inconvenience. I don't know. There's there's a lot of opportunities for me to do a lot better uh, in this regard. And while again, maybe it's not on a, a grand scale of injustice as some of these other things that they mentioned, it can add up and it can become something of importance. And it can, it can weigh heavy. Yeah, I'm not expecting myself to go every single moment of every single day being altruistic and outside myself. Uh, but missing opportunities to do so, to speak up, to be of service on purpose, knowing that I have those opportunities just because I don't feel like it. Uh, that's more what this, this reading, I think, is bringing to mind and calling to the forefront of, especially lately. So with all that out of the way and a little deeper into this than I expected, let's get into the reading. So like I said, where we left off was uh, more about alcoholism. We are on page 37, or at least it's page 37 of what my book would be. Again, I'm using this app. It is uh, quite simply just called the AA Big Book app. Uh, I definitely recommend anybody out there who is interested in keeping something like this handy, uh, check the app out. It's, you know, you have the entire Big Book on hand, the whole 164 pages. Uh, there's other resources in here. There's meeting resources. There's even a community of people that just share their their experience, strength, and hope, or at least their struggles. And you can comment and have that kind of an experience as well. But more importantly for me, it's just if at any point I feel like I could just use a little bit of this kind of thing, it's in my pocket. So that's what I'm using. Uh, so it might be a little bit different for as far as page goes. But the last thing that I read was easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. So moving on from there, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? You may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. <clears throat> And yeah, I can definitely relate with that. I'm sure a lot of people 
out there listening can. I'm sure people that have read this book can. I'm sure there are people that have never even stepped foot into AA that can relate to that sort of just an insane obsession that can cross the mind of somebody that's trying to quit. For me, it was, you know, the closer I got to that last drink that I had this last time, that argument I used to have with myself on my way home from work, where as I got closer to that liquor store, and it was always the same one, I would slowly convince myself that I was going to drink. Even like up until I was at the register, and even on the way home with the bottle in the car, still thinking to myself, you know, I'm just going to have, I'm just going to have one. I mean, I'm not even going to have a full shot. I'm just going to have a half a shot like that. Like it somehow made sense that this time I would just drink a little bit just to kind of settle my nerves like that happens so often. In some circumstances, we have gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. Now, not every time that I drank... Uh, was deliberately to get drunk, but rarely did I drink for flavor and taste. That's sort of where I'm at with like these um, these non-alcoholic beverages. I can appreciate that some people can drink those and not have like the trigger or desire to drink, but I never really enjoyed much of any of the liquor or alcohol that I put into my body. Not to the point to where I would drink it without the effect. Like I was all about the effect. That's why I went with $8 bottles of vodka. Like, I could give a shit what it tasted like. There was always that underlying determination to get completely blasted. There were waves and periods. Like I said, I did switch to expensive scotch, but I still drank that expensive, tasty scotch in excess with the intention of getting drunk. There was never just one drink. I never, ever, very rarely, if ever, had just one glass of scotch on the rocks. It was, you know, maybe I'd get away with two, but then, you know, the next time it'd be the whole bottle. Uh, anyways, back to the reading. Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. This is one of my favorite parts of the book. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then desert deserts him, and he is slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. Presently, he is hit again, and this time has a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He tells you he's decided to stop jaywalking for good, but in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. Now, my first thought is jackass, uh, but, you know, some of them struggled with alcohol and drug addiction on top of purposefully going out and breaking their limbs on a regular basis and harming themselves in weird and spectacular fashion. Uh, but, you know, the idea just remains like, despite whatever could possibly happen when I drank, I still did it. On through the years, this conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer walk. His wife gets a divorce, and he is held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head. He sh shuts himself up in an asylum, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. 
Such a ban would be crazy, Whitney. You may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We, who have been through the ringer, have to admit if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects, where alcohol has been involved, we have been strangely insane. It's strange language, but isn't it true? Some of you are thinking, yes, what you tell is the truth, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we have not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to, for we all understand ourselves so well after what you've told us that such things cannot happen again. We have not lost everything in life through drinking, and we certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. And that's, you know, I've been in meetings where people have said this kind of stuff. Well, after listening to all you guys, I just, I just don't think I'm an alcoholic. Which is fine. Like, I hope that that's actually the case for a lot of people. I have been in one of those meetings and been the person that think that. I've been the person to be like, well, man, I mean, I got a DUI and I stopped drinking and driving, so I must be okay. I'm not like this other person who's been collecting DUIs. Now, I want you to really understand that I said this in a meeting after getting a DUI, eight years after having spent time in prison for getting blackout drunk and trying to kill somebody. Like in my brain, I had completely disconnected myself from that kind of behavior and decided that, well, now that I've drank and drove and gotten a DUI, I just won't drink and drive anymore and I'm fine. Like the two things didn't even align in my brain that obviously there might be some bigger problems at play here and it could very well be that drinking is the problem. This is after having experience in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's just how crazy my brain was. And I still was thinking, well, I'm not as bad as this dude over here, so I must not have a problem. Back to the reading. That may be true of certain non-alcoholic people who, though drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. But the actual or potential alcoholic with hardly any exception will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge this is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize to smash home upon our alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience let us take another illustration so i think it's also worth noting that when this book was published you know, the original kind of idea was that the people that would be coming in would be essentially like at rock bottom. And that rock bottom has changed over the years. It is really easy for people to come into this program, for people to be in this program, having been in this program, to start like having this kind of contest of rock bottoms. Who had the, who had the worst rock bottom? Do you qualify? This weird ideal that I'm more qualified. If you earn the seat, you earn the seat. I don't care if you had fucking a week of you know, binge drinking and you're like, that's it. I'm never drinking again. And I'm going to use AA to make sure that happens. You're fucking welcome here, period. I don't really care if it didn't take you being homeless or committing a felony or harming the people in your life to a point where you now have to spend the rest of it making it up to them. Like that's not necessary. Specifically, what is necessary is that you have a desire to quit. That's it. And if you're willing to work that program, then you are qualified to work that program. If your interest is in quitting drinking, hell man, if you're interested is just being a better person and you feel that AA might be providing that, maybe you're not as welcome in some meetings because you don't have a drinking problem. Some closed meetings do require that, but you're still welcome to work the program. Now, in order for you to actually participate in some of this stuff, you do have to have that desire to quit drinking. And I feel that's a reasonable request to make for a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, but there isn't a rule set. There's no barometer. The dude next to you that, or, or woman next to you that's just decided 
decided that because she had it, you know, bad a certain way, now she's the decider on how bad you should have had it. Or, or the people in the room that might say something like, quit whining, you don't have it as bad as me, that kind of shit. Fucking ignore all that. They don't get to make the rules. That stuff I said at the beginning of this podcast where I was talking about how chaotic and insane the group was before anything actually sprung out of the book and AA was even formed, those people are still here. They haven't gone anywhere. So despite their efforts, people still get sober and you can too. <clears throat> Just don't let anybody decide for you your whether or not you're qualified to be here. There's no contest. Nobody can make that decision for you. Only you can. Back to the reading. Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home, is happily married, and the father of a promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it is Fred. To all appearance, he is a stable, well-balanced individual. Yet, he is alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he had gone to recover from a bad case of jitters. It was his first experience of this kind, and he, is much, he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he had come to the hospital to rest his nerves. The doctor intimated strongly that he might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so in spite of his character and standing. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic, much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. We told him that we knew about alcoholism. He was interested and conceded that he had some of the symptoms, but he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that his humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. Yeah, of course it would, right? I mean, I, I had this kind of thought so many times in my life. It's why I never really sought out any kind of counseling, right? Because I was convinced that if I read enough books about it, then I could solve it myself. I find it really interesting, and I'm sure I'm not the only person to ever comment on this, that we as humans really believe, and I know a lot of it is based on stigmatism, it's based on just sort of this weird kind of sense of judgment we have for mental illness in general as, as a species, but we also just have this, this idea that we can fix it ourselves. That for whatever reason, like if I broke my leg and my bone and my leg was sticking out, and I was like, ah, I'm good, I'm just gonna go home and wrap this shit up in some duct tape, someone's taking my ass to the hospital. Like, if it's, you know what I mean? Like, it's not gonna just be like, yeah, cool, bro, figure that out. But if I have like a severe mental breakdown at work, because of, you know, alcoholic intake and, and all kinds of other just different shit. And I told my coworkers, hey, I just need to go sleep this off and came back the next day. There wouldn't be a lot of questions about that. Uh, no one's taking my ass to the hospital. Now, maybe this was different back in the 30s when hospitals seemed to actually take folks for shit like this. But it just, it seemed more, it seems perfectly rational when you tell people that you're fixing this stuff on your own. I mean, there's even a weird movement on Twitter to like encourage self-diagnosis over having medical doctors diagnose because now they're gatekeeping like mental illness is a very strange place to be like it is such a very misunderstood and unorganized entity in our society and it's it's, it's even worse when it comes to addiction and understanding it and it just makes it harder for people to feel like they should actually reach out and get help it's such a weird 
part of the human condition. Back to the reading. We heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told that he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. The story he told is most instructive, for here was a chap absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking, who had no excuse for drinking, who exhibited splendid judgment and determination in all his other concerns, yet was flat on his back nevertheless. Let him tell you about it. I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink, but I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, that I had been usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and that I would therefore be successful where you men failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident, that it would be only a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. In this frame of mind, I went about my business and for a time all was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard of work of a simple matter. One day I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during this particular dry spell, so there was nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing worries or problems. My business came off well, I was pleased, and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day and not a cloud on the horizon. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to my mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. I ordered a cocktail and my meal. Then I ordered another cocktail. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed, so I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. I have a, sh a shadowy recollection of being in an airport bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxi driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver ex escorted me for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with the unbearable mental and physical suffering. Now, I'm going to be honest. I didn't have these kinds of episodes where, you know, I'd end up in a different country or a different state or a different city. I have friends that have, uh, but I can at least relate. I did start out my day, you know, going to work and then around three o'clock getting off work and then not getting home until three in the morning and not really being able to recall what the fuck happened? Like I knew I was out at all the strip clubs in Portland or whatever it was I was doing, but the chain of events was so just beyond my comprehension. Like it was, I got off work, suddenly I'm home, it's three o'clock in the morning and my, you know, the woman I'm with is pissed. I blew all my money and I'm wasted and I smell like strippers and I couldn't tell you how I got there. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time, I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carefully as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remembered that my alcoholic friends had told me how they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again. They had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen and more, for what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from the moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then. 
It was the crushing blow. Two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much, and then asked me if I thought myself alcoholic and if I were really licked this time. I had to concede both propositions. They piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality, such as I had been exhibiting in Washington, was a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker, flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. Then they outlined the spiritual answer and program of action which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Though I had been only a nominal churchman, their pro uh, proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow. But the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. That was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through with this process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, and in fact, it proved to be. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all of my problems. And here is uh, me saying that I do not feel that way about this. And you'll see a lot of this in the meetings. You'll hear a lot of this, I mean. You'll see a lot of this in comments that are made if you do join certain Facebook groups or you find yourself online and other ve venues, you know, talking about this stuff. Something like, our chemical problem requires a spiritual solution, right? Like little slogans like that. I, I am fine that other people need this and require this sort of spiritual thing, right? I don't. And I don't think a lot of people really will find that they do either. People that really dig down deep don't really think that there is a magical being that for some reason has chosen them to stay sober at this point because they ask them to. Like, where the hell is that being any other time you wanted to stay sober? Now that you've put the label of alcoholic in front of that, somehow that spiritual being has decided that you're okay to stay sober? I don't just think that that's how that works, right? Now, the whole belief thing, right? The idea that belief is required um, does have a point and, and make sense and work. And I understand that some people have the need for that to be a being that is more powerful than themselves. I'm not saying it's a weakness. I am not smarter than these people. I am not better than these people. I have just come to personally understand for myself that it's not required. I just flat out don't think that God waited until 1938 to offer people the opportunity to be sober, specifically on the day that Bill Wilson decided that it was going to be so. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me, and it doesn't feel like a requirement anymore for this. I think as more and more people are kind of raised outside of the idea of just this generalized religion, you know, these practices that, that follow that, these rituals, that they're going to be able to, to find their way to this program or programs like this one without that kind of attachment of requiring some sort of supernatural being and yeah i've said this before and i'll probably say it again and or something very similar other people that i talk to will say it but anytime it comes up in this book i'm just going to kind of reiterate that because it is kind of a sticking point for people this is some of the stuff that people run into when they read this and they're like i can't fucking do it I can't do AA because of this. It's just important to note that, you know, one, you got to look at the history of when this was written. You got to look at the people that they were trying to persuade. You got to look at the fact that they weren't just trying to write a book that was specifically psychological because people didn't feel that that was good enough. A lot of the people in the program didn't feel that that was good enough. There wasn't a track record to show anything else worked outside of something requiring a god or some sort of spiritual advisor or whatever it was that this book is really saying. So 
that's the audience that they made this for. And of course, people latched onto that and followed it over the years. I would suggest that you take into account that some people that have been following this program for 30 years have been doing it with a power greater than themselves. And it's not my job or anyone else's to tell them that they're wrong. But in that same vein, it's not their job to tell me that I'm wrong just based on a book that was written in 1938 and their own personal experience. While the power of AA is real, the ability to stay sober while working this program is real, it is wildly anecdotal. And when you're somebody like me who is fairly pragmatic and needs some sort of proof, the fact that people have stayed sober is my proof. It's like, and just sometimes I don't need the specific scientific research to back that up. There's plenty of shit that I believe that I don't look deeply into that I'm not scholarly adept at. And this can be absolutely one of them. The fact that it is working currently for me and has helped me to genuinely be a better person when all else seemed to have failed is good enough. And it should be for others, I hope. So if you can continue to make it through this book despite all this God spiritual stuff, then I hope it can do the same for you. Back to the reading. I have since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. He had felt only the first nip of the ringer. Most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. Many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusions. One of these men, staff member of a world-renowned hospital, recently made this statement to some of us. What you say about the general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight is, in my opinion, correct. As to two of the men whose stories I have heard, there is no doubt in my mind that you were 100% hopeless apart from divine help. Had you offered yourselves as patients at this hospital, I would not have taken you if I had been able to avoid it. People like you are too heartbreaking. Though not a religious person, I have profound respect for the spiritual approach in such cases as yours. For most cases, there is virtually no other solution. Okay, look, this is definitely one of those situations where Bill W. is like just wildly exaggerating an interaction that may or may not have happened. But I get what he's trying to do. I think it's easier now the further we are away from the inception of this story to see that, yeah, a lot of this was conflated. And I find it really entertaining, honestly. I think if Bill Wilson were alive right now, he'd be like, yeah, it was full of shit. It's all right. Look at how many people got sober. Look at the millions of people that have recovered from this. Just because I, what, exaggerated some stories? It's not like he did it to get rich. This is one of those like morality sort of conundrums, right? Like, was he wrong to lie? Yeah. Did it result in some pretty amazing shit? Yeah. Yeah, it did. Were the lies of an, a, a nature that caused genuine harm? Not really. Nobody was harmed in this that I can see. Ugh. Me finding out about this isn't me finding out that Santa Claus isn't real. It's just me finding out that a salesman lied. Like, fuck yeah, of course they did. Now, there's going to be opportunistic people that are like, oh, cool. That means as long as I lie about shit that ends up resulting in a good thing, then uh, I'm fine. But please take into consideration Bill W. suffered greatly from depression throughout the majority of his sobriety which could potentially be a result of having lied about so much of the inception of this thing. Maybe. I don't know. What I know is that that's very likely a trade-off. I mean, the purpose of this program is to be honest in all our affairs as much as possible. One of the purposes. And 
So while, yeah, this dude was able to help a lot of people, I don't think you lying to your boss about being late to work is helping anybody. You know what I mean? Like there's going to be, you know, some probable uh, opportunities to, to use this knowledge that Bill Wilson may have lied about some of this book to your advantage. And that's cool. I, I hope that's not the case, but whatever floats your boat, you know, at the end of the day, we're just here to be sober and be better humans. So whatever that means for the folks listening. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Uh, so that's the end of that chapter. I don't think I need to reiterate my thoughts on that whole last line there, the higher power part. The next part's my favorite part of the book, and I'm kidding when I say that. The uh, We Agnostics. This is the only part of the book that I feel has no value for me. Now we're going to read it anyways, because... I just think it's important, you know, from so many uh, angles and aspects to read all of the words in this book and to do our best, my best, to make it fit me, to make it fit my needs. So, you know, in a lot of ways, even reading this book and like not doing anything with it is still a baseline for what comes next in sobriety for me. You know, even if I were to read this and at the end of the day choose some other program, knowing that those other programs came on the backs of this, you know, it's important for me to know the inception. If I'm going to have an issue with some sort of spiritual aspect of this program, then I better have read the spiritual aspect of this program. It's kind of just how that should work. If I'm going to have an issue with the Bible, I should probably have read the Bible to have an issue with it, right? So yeah, I'm going to read the, the whole We Agnostic part, and I'll have a lot to say about that, probably more than I've had to say so far, and probably more than I'll have to say about a lot of the rest of the book as it comes. But you know, the parts that stick out for me might not stick out for other people, and somebody might hear something in the We Agnostic that, while it does nothing for me, does something greatly for them. So we'll see how that goes. It should be an entertaining uh, journey regardless. And I hope to catch you all there. Uh, again, uh, just to kind of reiterate, if you are interested in reaching out to me or engaging with some other folks that are uh, secular in nature and also in recovery or are just in recovery in general, you can hit me up at on Facebook at an atheist reads the big book of AA. You can also find me on Twitter at an atheist in. And you can send me an email at oneatheistnaa at gmail.com. I appreciate you joining me on this journey. I hope you got something out of this. Uh, either way, thanks for listening.